0: Welcome to the All Y'all Podcast. I'm Sarah Abear.
1: And I'm Chris J. Sarah and I produce All Y'all independently in Shreveport, Louisiana. For this special series of episodes, we've been lucky enough to partner with the good folks at Louisiana Public Broadcasting.
0: You're listening to the third episode in a five-part series exploring the legacy of the Louisiana Hayride, a live country music showcase that was broadcast live from Shreveport beginning in 1948. The Hayride introduced Elvis Presley to a mass audience and also served as a turning point in the careers of many performers like Johnny Cash, Hank Williams, and Johnny Horton.
1: If you missed the last episode in this series, featuring a great conversation with newspaper publisher Robert Gentry, You can find it at www.allyallblog.com, or look us up and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Google Play. We're just about everywhere. Just search for All Y'all.
0: In this episode, you'll hear our conversation with Joey Kent, owner of the Louisiana Hayride Archives. He's the author of two books about the Louisiana Hayride, including a brand new book called Cradle of the Stars. Joey's father, David Kent, was a businessman who produced a revival of the Louisiana Hayride in the 1970s and 80s.
1: These days, Joey calls New Orleans home, but he visited Shreveport in November of 2019, which is when we spoke with him. Here's our conversation with Louisiana Hayride archivist and historian, Joey Kent.
0: Tell us a little bit about how the Hayride came into your life.
2: As a teenager... I guess this would have been 1973 my father was approached by hayride announcer frank page about reviving the louisiana hayride it had run as a regular show the primary run from 1948 to 1960 and then throughout the 1960s it was a name that was attached to package shows that would come to town the johnny cash touring show being an example and uh that continued on into 1970-71 but by 1973, there was very little use being made of the name, and my father partnered with Frank Page and they uh, created a show. Uh, the Municipal Auditorium was not in a state of repair to host the show, so they built an auditorium in Bossier City on the Benton Road at what was to be the intersection of Interstate 220 and I-49, and you see how that turned out. <laughs> um, but my father ran a show. He, uh, he went to Cage and purchased the Louisiana Hayride name and assets in 1975 and as a guy in college i found it a great place to go get free barbecue and watch a little country music if i was so inclined
0: what do you remember about those shows other than the barbecue which already sounds great
2: oh the, the barbecue was was fabulous and i could feel important walking backstage and bringing my date and you know trying to look cool but there were so many talented musicians on my father's show uh, the, the Haywright history books, most of them tend to end in 1960, and that doesn't really do service to, well, let's say Nat Stuckey, who came along right at the tail end and was a popular figure in the 1960s. And then all of the people that were on my father's show, an example being Linda Davis, who had the number one hit with Reba McIntyre, Does He Love Me? So there's a lot going on out there. Shoji Tabuchi, the Branson fiddler with the huge theater in Branson. He got his start on the Hayride out on Benton Road. Um, Kix Brooks, a local favorite, his bass player, Danny Milner, was in my father's band. Uh, numerous songwriters. Mickey Furman was a, a huge gospel recording artist uh, in the day. So there was a lot of talent out there. It was a, a tight organization and a family organization. Everyone knew each other.
0: I loved um, hearing that you would take dates to these shows. Um, And for those of us who don't have the the ability to time travel, can you tell us a little bit about what the shows were like in terms of like when you get there, you know, what would happen next? Would someone take your ticket? Would you go sit somewhere in particular? What was the typical night like?
2: Well, I would show up and take my date next door to Hayride Kitchen Restaurant, which at the time uh, had been remodeled to where the restaurant had windows across the back that overlooked the show, so we weren't necessarily in any hurry to be there for the beginning of the show. And then rather than go around to the ticket counters, because I was the son of, you know, David Kent, I could go out the fire door, basically, that connected the, uh, <laughs> the restaurant to the auditorium, and, and we would then go backstage and hang out a little bit. But you really couldn't hear very well, and it was a little too crazy, so we'd very quickly just go out front and find a seat Uh, uh, so you know we'd spend a lot of time in in the haystack lounge and then get out uh, uh, to where the audience was and it was interesting to watch because my father had incorporated a star search contest in 1977 when he first started the show in 1974 he felt that the times required you to have name brand talent in order to compete. So he booked in all the top acts of the day, Tanya Tucker, Sammy Smith, um, Archie Campbell. And after Archie's show, he said, you know, Dave, uh, what you really ought to think about doing is returning to the original format of the Louisiana Hayride, which was a star search show. I mean, truly, the Louisiana Hayride from 1948 to 60 was the nation's first star search program. And so my father took that advice and he began his annual star search contest and folks would come in, uh, acts would show up with busloads of people, literally, and stack the audience because the, the voting was done by the audience members. <gasps> wow. So you had a lot of uh, interesting folks that won that probably shouldn't have won just because they, uh, they stacked the deck. But then again, you look back in history, Webb Pierce the most famous uh, and popular country act of the 1950s
1: did the exact same thing on the Louisiana Hayride. Mm-hmm. I know it's asking a lot, but can you recount the story of when you went to clear out the the Louisiana Hayride materials after your dad had purchased the, the trademark, I guess is the right way to say it? Uh, well, that was the At well, the,
2: the time, KWKH was relocating from just up the street here um, at the Petroleum Tower, to the facilities they now occupy out on Interstate 20. So they were in the, the middle of moving. And they said, by the way, we're moving and we've got a few old boxes of tapes and things. Do you want them? And my father said, yeah, I'll send my son by, you know, to pick him up in the next few days. This was March of 75. And so I show up here at the petroleum building. And at the time, the, uh, the low man on the totem pole who drew the short straw was Ken Shepard. He was a disc jockey there. Ken was cleaning out this room. And I go in and I collect the two boxes. I'm coming back for box number two. And he said, you know, hey, while you are here? Can you help me move this desk over here? And so it was the desk that the box of, well, one of the boxes of tapes had been sitting on. So I said, sure, move it away from the wall. And there's a rattle. And here comes this reel-to-reel tape unrolling across the floor. I stop it with my foot and look down and just pick it up and i noticed written on the side of the reel the clear plastic reel in uh, white chalk was the word elvis so i was like okay and you know this was still several years before elvis died and he was doing his vegas thing so i thought oh cool you know i didn't know anything about the hayrod much at that time so put it in the box took it on out well a couple years later i was working up the street at, at jordan and booth the family clothing store when the news came that Elvis Presley had died, and then I realized, wait a minute, he was on the Hayride. And my father made plans with RCA Records to release his Hayride recordings, and all of a sudden it was a big deal. And he pulled out that reel, and it turned out to be uh, the recording of October 16, 1954, when Elvis was introduced to radio listeners worldwide you know, for the very first time. You found that recording. It was wedged between the desk and the wall. It had fallen out of the box and was, you know, just pinched back there. Incredible.
0: So, Do you yeah. feel like anyone knew that a recording existed?
2: <laughs> Maybe so. I mean, they knew – K.W. had this wonderful naivety that you see throughout the Hayride history. I mean, let's look back at when Elvis was there – 1954, he shows up in October. November the 6th, he signs a year contract, and that carries him all the way to November of 55. Several months prior to the expiration of the contract, he gets tied in with uh, Colonel Tom Parker. And the Haywright contract is driving Parker crazy because it's for it pays Elvis $18 for his Saturday night appearance and Scotty and Bill $12.50 each. So, I mean, you know... 50 bucks to come to Shreveport every Saturday when the Colonel can book him out anywhere for 2,500 to five grand a night. I mean, he's not even reached the zenith of his early fame. And this is driving him crazy. So the Colonel comes in town and he meets with Henry Clay and he's like, Look, this is March of 1956. And he said, Look, we got to do something here. Uh, What's it going to take to get Elvis out of the last six months of his contract? And Henry said, "Well, you know, we we don't want to hold Elvis back. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's probably the face values four or five thousand dollars worth. Because when he renewed to his favor in uh, November '55, the fee was had gone up to two hundred dollars for Elvis and band for the weekend. Uh, the Colonel begged uh, Elvis's parents not to co-sign the contract because Elvis was still underage." But they said, you know, a bird in the hand. You keep talking about this RCA deal you're going to bring forth, but, you know, he didn't pull it off until two weeks after Elvis resigned. Then the Colonel shows up with the deal of the lifetime, but it's too late. So Colonel shows up out there at KWKH, talks to Henry Clay, and says, uh, you know, how do we how do we get out of this? And and, and Henry says, well, you know, talk to me. What what kind of offer do you want to make? And Colonel says, you know, I'm a promoter. I could do wonders for the Louisiana Hayride. I'll come in here. We'll set up an artist service bureau. I'll be the head talent guy, and you know I will handle all the bookings for the Louisiana Hayride. And I'll even put up fifteen thousand dollars, and we'll build a state-of-the-art recording studio out here at Cage for these artists. And we'll blow Nashville away, and we'll we'll just kill it. And Henry goes, well, okay, that doesn't sound like a bad deal. Uh, we. We can certainly take a look at that. And then the colonel took a breath and said, and I've got to have full control of the show, full say over who gets on, who doesn't, what happens on the show, et cetera. And Henry said, well, you know, my father-in-law owns this station, and he's not going to go for that, and I'm not going to go for that. So thank you for your time. And then the discussion became, well, how do we get him out of the contract? And the face value was, I think, four to five thousand dollars so Henry Clay said well I think ten thousand dollars ought to do it so the colonel came up with ten thousand dollars cash and then at the last minute they agreed that Elvis would return six months later to do one final show for the charity of his choosing Henry also mentioned that he was on the building committee for the YMCA of the city of Shreveport and it might be a really cool idea if Elvis chose the YMCA of the city of Shreveport which he freely, chose and uh, that show was put on December 15 1956 and raised it netted 15,000 a little over $15,000 that was to go to the the building fund uh, they made a big deal about saying over and over again on the air that Elvis receives no money at all for his appearance here it's all going to charity which was a true statement but Colonel Tom Parker Received his standard fifty percent, so mm-hmm. the fifteen thousand went to seventy five, fifty one, sixty seven, which is what uh, uh, Camp Forbing ended up being the main benefactor of that, and built the swimming pool among other improvements
1: out there. I've always heard that legend of um, of that pool being really built by Elvis Presley, and it, that there was at one point a marker, but the marker has disappeared, and I've heard all these different all these, different. Yeah. You know, pieces of apocryphal wisdom surrounding that pool. I would love to – is that pool even still there? You know what I mean? Like a a lot of time has passed.
2: But making a roundabout statement to finding my way back to your original question, the wisdom of KWKH or their naivety and not recognizing what they had – That was part of it, but they did book Elvis back for this show December 15th, 56. They moved it out to the Hirsch Coliseum at the fairgrounds, then known as the Youth Building, uh, because it held 10,000 people and the municipal auditorium only held 3,800. They sold out every ticket very quickly. But Elvis, it wasn't the Elvis Presley headliner show. He was one act of 20. He was assigned to his usual spot, you know, just after nine o'clock, come on out on stage. And, uh, that to me is just amazing because at this point he's got Hound Dog out. He's his first movie is out and he's a really big deal. So the the show gets going and Elvis comes out at nine o'clock and does a 30 minute set and then does a uh, five minute encore of Hound Dog. And if you're familiar with the song, it only really has one lyric. So how do you make that last five minutes? You end up with this burlesque rendition, you know, and you can just see his leg making these rotations as he's gyrating. But he finishes, and he leaves, and the applause continue, and it's just madness because all the teenagers, hey, they're exiting the building. The girls Mm -hmm. want to catch a glimpse of Elvis, and the teens are like, well, we didn't come here for country music. You know, what we came here for is gone, so everybody's leaving. Horace watches us for a few minutes while he does a few commercial announcements. And then he clears his throat and leans into the microphone and says, you know, all right, you've been perfect, ladies and gentlemen, which, of course, the audience had not been. And he said, "Uh, we've got a wonderful show yet still to come for you. Uh, So if you'd like to take your seats, uh, now would be a good time and we'll continue on with the show now. People keep leaving, keep leaving. He makes another announcement, and then he comes back on, and he's frustrated. And he, he says again, all right, Elvis has left the building. I have told you straight up to this point, he has left the building, and he has now gone with the policeman. So if you'd like to take your seats, and, you know, it never happened. But it did lead to the most famous, iconic phrase in uh, American Music history being said for the very first time, and that's why. It was a plea to get the audience to come back in. Um,
0: It's It's a wild recording to listen to, and it makes me think a little bit about you finding this recording, right, in KWKH. It rolls out from this desk, right, and then probably at some point you listened to it, whether that was immediately or later. I'm curious to know, like, you know, how did you feel listening to it and discovering that you guys had this gem?
2: Well, here was the deal. My father uh, brokered a deal with RCA to release eight recordings that they had at the time on Elvis. Uh, Since that time, we've come up with several dozen, but at the time he only had eight and they put out an album and the wires got crossed and things didn't go economically as they should have for my father. So he shelved it. Uh, Several years after he died in, in 1995, I wanted to revisit it because we had more Elvis tracks and I felt the job hadn't been done. So I was listening to these recordings and I listened to the burlesque version of Hound Dog and it was on a reel-to-reel tape. Well, There was still several minutes of the tape left and I thought, well, let me see what happens here. So I played it and I'm listening to it and Horace, you know, uh, does his uh, uh, coffee commercial, I think, and then he talks about... Uh, K.W. Cage being the home for Centenary Basketball Games for 1957. And then here comes Elvis has left the building. My father had missed it. He had that tape because he included Hound Dog, but no one had let it play out because Elvis was gone. What more is there to listen to? And I heard that and I'm like, wait a minute. All my life I've heard this was first said in Vegas or somewhere like that. And here we've got it being said right here in Shreveport, and it makes sense why it was said. You could get a sense in a way of what was going on there, but there's no way to explain how this guy in a pink suit and a black shirt and a clip-on bow tie has just walked out on the stage that's used to seeing the stereotypical tub thumpers I mean, ragged overalls, plaid shirts, banjos, wash tubs, uh, you know, accordions. The the Hayride was free with their instrumentation. They were they weren't out to prove what the Grand Old Opry was. Cage had created the show as a filler for advertising. That was their only objective. Barn dance shows were popular in the nation at the time, so they they did a copycat show never had any illusions of grandeur. They didn't like the Opry because the Opry derided the Louisiana Hayride and it was a competition uh, that KWKH referred to the Grand Old Opry as Hayride East. And uh, it never settled from there. When artists graduated from the farm club that was the Louisiana Hayride to the Grand Old Opry, they were told to not talk of their past and where they came from. And so today with... The, the new Ken Burns country music documentary on the horizon and coming out. I don't look for there to be a lot of information on the Louisiana Hayride because I found when I was interviewing these folks in uh, 2003, 2004, and they told me that they were forbidden of talking of the Hayride, that that continued in Nashville. Uh, the Louisiana Hayride remains this great silent chapter. So that's why I felt compelled to do the book. Number one, I felt it was a legacy for my father. And number two, I felt an obligation to fill in this missing piece of history because not only did the show deliver several dozen Country Music Hall of Fame artists, and you know they even used to joke around the Grand Ole Aubrey that if you took away the Louisiana Hayride artists from the show, there wouldn't be an Aubrey show. Not only did it deliver that, but the institution of the hayride itself and what it offered. 38 states, you know, broadcasting. Armed Forces Radio every three weeks being broadcast in Japan and Ireland and things like that. I mean, the Europeans have a greater understanding of the Louisiana hayride than many of uh, the folks that live in Shreveport, uh,
0: you know, it's it's so cool to hear that this was part of your family and that these documents and, you know, this history that you've really dedicated your life, it sounds like, to bringing that legacy of your father's and of the hayride into public consciousness. Someone recently brought it to my attention that you donated some material to the Library of Congress. and yes. I wondered if we could talk a little bit about that process and, and why was it important for you for some of those materials to be there?
2: Oh, absolutely. No, when I... Inherited the archives upon my father's passing in 1992. It consisted of 400 recordings or 400 tracks, let's say. Amazing. And uh, about 60 photographs. And so I started interviewing people that were on the show and reaching out to people who attended the show. And I hooked into, you know, Elvis fan clubs and networks of grown adults who had been teenagers with their brownie cameras and very soon uh, with the advent of the internet and ebay etc uh... began building the collection and by 2009 that collection was up to 2200 recordings and 3500 photographs Um, frank page approached me shortly after my father's death and said i want to do a proper hayride book and i want you to do it with me and i said well frank my knowledge of the history of the Louisiana Hayride is good barbecue and, you know, Truman Langford in the Hay Lounge. And he said, well, get to work. You've got studying to do. And so that was the impetus I needed. And that's where it began for me. And as I waded into it, Frank said, I want you to go back to the very beginning and look at the history of KWKH. And I said, well, It's a radio station, big deal. I mean, the hayride was the biggest thing that ever happened to it. And he goes, no, 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 that's where you're wrong. W.K. Henderson, who founded KWKH, incredible story there. Look into it. And I did, and Frank was right. I mean, W.K. Henderson, the founder of KWKH in 1923, this guy was the nation's first shock jock. He was a true radio pioneer. Uh, His name was on the lips of everyone in America because... Uh, like our current president he was very outspoken in that way and he was he would freely cuss on his on the air and back then there was no uh, body to regulate <laughs> yeah. him no federal radio commission in fact several years later they were set up in part he was the poster child for that and for the reason for the federal radio commission was to regulate him he had he would not stick to his bandwidth. He didn't like the interference and the static electricity that the South had. So he would switch over to the Canadian frequencies at night and boost his power to, you know, 100,000 watts or more. I actually have listener response cards from 1929 and 30 from Hawaii.
0: Wow. And he, we
2: had, he had a sister station, KWEA, that was run by his announcer right up the street in North Market. And uh, it was supposed to just be for the local entertainment. It only had 50 watts. And we've got listener response cards from Hawaii on them as well. That's like the Centenary College Station uh-huh. reaching Hawaii.
1: <laughs> so these guys
2: were pulling some tricks back then. And that's why my book starts not with the Louisiana Hayride, but with 1907 and the arrival of the first radio set in Shreveport and yeah. Henderson's engineer, Bill Antony. Anthony created the first 26 radio stations in Shreveport in the 1920s. Now, several of them are still around today. Keele Radio comes from the very uh, the second radio station he created in this town. KWKH comes from the third. These were pioneers at the very earliest days of radio when they were still trying to figure out signal strength, reach, The listeners would send in their comment cards to show who was picking up a signal where. So Henderson, in all his ostentatiousness and trying to get this big, huge audience, was actually performing a service, a scientific research, if you will. So that was very interesting to me. Henderson's... This, this guy owned the Henderson Iron Works down right here on the riverfront where we are, six blocks. The largest iron concern in America. He falls in love with radio and just that becomes his passion and he could care less about the ironworks.
1: You've collected a
2: lot of wisdom about this place. Yeah, oh my goodness. And just getting back to the Library of Congress, uh, I began talks with the Library of Congress in Culpeper, Virginia. And uh, one weekend, uh, hopped on a train in Marshall, Texas, because I didn't want to check the tapes and have them get scanned because they could be erased. Uh, I had sought out uh, the, the family of C.G. Graham, who was a photographer here in Shreveport during the 1940s uh, and 50s and 60s. Mr. Graham had a passion for country music and had asked the Hayride if they minded if he patched into their board and started recording. And this man started recording Hayride shows from the very beginning, 1948. Hank Williams, all kinds of artists. He, uh, he stored the tapes at his, his photography studios right up by Byrd High School on Gladstone. And in 1960, those offices were broken into and all of his equipment was stolen, and all the boxes. It wasn't an attempt to steal the tapes, it was to steal the valuable photographic equipment. Uh, The tapes more than likely were just thrown right in the trash. They've never surfaced. I've been given no indication that they ever existed. Fortunately, Mr. Graham had run out of room uh, and had begun storing tapes in his home. And those survived. And I located his grandchildren and arranged to purchase those recordings, which took my archives at the time were 600 recordings. That took it up, added another 1,600. Wow. And that forms today the bulk of the box set that you have before you, the Louisiana Hayride Archives. So we had 2,200 audio recordings. And because my research was going back covering KWKH and the early radio stations, I had 3,500 photographs and four dozen video interviews. But I had this whole collection. And so in in 2009, I took a train up there and, uh, and donated all of the originals plus a digital collection to the Library of Congress just to make sure it got into proper hands because tapes are fragile and, uh, you know, things can happen. And as it turned out, sure enough, my hard drive got destroyed and I've got to go back to the Library of Congress and get a copy of my own material. Wow. I'm
0: so grateful that you You put that material there. I mean, it's one of my wishes to go there and see the videos that you have on file there because it sounds like such vital documentation. I'd
2: love to do another... uh, Hayride documentary. I think LPB did a a great service when they did their show in 1984.
0: Well, thank you, Joey. Thank you so much. We need to wrap because our next guest is here, but I could spend all day talking to you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I uh, appreciate uh, the, the time to talk about a passion of mine. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: That was Joey Kent, owner of the Louisiana Hayride Archives and author of the new book, Cradle of the Stars, KWKH and the Louisiana Hayride. If you'd like to get your hands on Joey's new book, you can pick up a copy at The Little Shop of Music in Shreveport, full disclosure. They are a client of mine, but the shop's awesome.
1: It is, and recently relocated to a big new place. It's wonderful. I hope you're ready for some boot scootin', because next up in our series of Louisiana Hayride interviews, we speak with country music superstar and Shreveport native Kix Brooks.
0: Our conversation with Kix wasn't limited to the Louisiana Hayride. We discussed his childhood in Shreveport, his time as a struggling Nashville songwriter, and a few landmark moments from his incredible career.
1: You can subscribe to All Y'all wherever you get your podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Overcast, we're super easy to find. Just search for All Y'all and look for the Orange Circle. That's us. If you're feeling especially generous, you could take a moment out to leave us a review. We get really excited when someone leaves a review of the podcast, especially if, you know, you're stuck inside.
0: (laughs) And thanks again to Louisiana Public Broadcasting for making this conversation possible. And also thanks to Cohab for allowing us to record this interview at their podcast studio in downtown Shreveport. I want to give another big shout out to longtime All Y'all Patrons, Maryland's Place, Max Centric, and Rhino Coffee. We love you, Tinder. Thank you to AJ Haynes for our Slim Whitman-inspired theme music and Alexander Holman for mixing those lovely tunes. AJ Haynes' participation is courtesy of New West Records.
1: If you feel like continuing the conversation, hop over to our Facebook page and leave a comment on our most recent post. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what the Louisiana Hayride means to you. Thanks for listening, y'all. Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis Presley. Oh, oh yeah.
0: Oh. oh, my. He's dreaming. <laughs>